welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, College for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, September 26th, we're studying Leviticus chapter 24, verses 1 to 23. In today's text, the Lord gives instructions for the lampstand and for the bread of the presence, both within the tabernacle, and he speaks of legislation for the case of blasphemy against his holy name. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Jeffrey Reese. Pastor Reese serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tacoma, Washington. Pastor Reese, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, thanks. It's great to be back. So we get started today, Pastor Reese, talk to us a little bit about the book of Leviticus, themes that we should know, and especially any context that'll help to look at chapter 24 today. Well, as you probably heard from uh, previous <coughs> guests, um, this, this book is, is basically God uh, sharing his holiness with his people. It's, it's, this, is, this book is all about setting God's people apart, making them holy for his purpose. Um, and uh, most of it is a lot of instruction on how this is to unfold. But to, today in 24, we're actually going to be looking at one of the, uh, really only the second narrative in the entire book. Uh, the, the first narrative back in chapters 8 through 10 with uh, Aaron and his sons uh, ending with that, that narrative ending with an unfortunate uh, incident with his sons. Um, and then this one we have today that we're walking through. Yeah, that's right. Isn't it, It's something that within the book of Leviticus, the narrative sections, both of them deal with something bad that happens, a sin that the people of Israel commit, which I suppose fits with the rest of the Old Testament mm -hmm. too. Right, and well, and they're and they're not quite sure what to do about it. In the in the first case, God, I mean, it kind of took care of itself. But in this case, right. Um, right. you know, that people needed to know, well, what do we do here? So yeah, that's right, that's right. So he's going to deal with that case of a blasphemy against his holy name. So we have some instruction about tabernacle furnishings, the holiness that is present mm -hmm. there, and then a case and some legislation concerning the holiness of God's name where someone blasphemes the name of God. So this is Leviticus chapter 24. Here's the text. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives from the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. 
since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. That Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. That is our text for today. That's Leviticus chapter 24, verses 1 to 23. So Pastor Reese, we start in this section with commands concerning furnishings within the tabernacle. First for the, the lampstand and the oil. Uh, maybe just remind us a little bit of the setting of the tabernacle here and then take us into some of this conversation about the lampstand particularly. Right. Well, the tabernacle, of course, is uh, predates the temple. And, you know, we often think about the temple and we know that it's, you know, the, the, the basically the sections of the, of the tabernacle are the same as what's going to happen with the temple later on. Uh, with a few exceptions, but you've got what, where the lampstand is, is right outside, um, as it says in the text, uh, right outside the uh, veil of the testimony, uh, which is the veil that we think about that, that is torn when Christ is crucified, the veil that covers the Holy of Holies. Um, so the lampstand and the table uh, are in the, where the bread goes, where the bread of presence goes, are in the holy place which is right outside the Holy of Holies. All right. So talk to us particularly about the instructions that are given concerning the lampstand here in Leviticus 24 then. Right. Well, you know, the, the, um, <clears throat> he's reiterating a, uh, an, a command from Exodus on using um, pure oil from beaten olives uh, and an oil that uh, isn't going to produce a lot of smoke. Um, that's one, one thing about this. It, it is basically your equivalent of virgin olive oil or extra virgin olive oil that you know we often use in cooking today. Um, it's a particularly fine oil. It's not just standard oil that's produced from you know a normal olive press. Uh, so it's a higher quality oil. Um, the uh, let's see, we already talked about the veil of testimony. Um, but the oil was used for this special lampstand, um, that 
on all of this, it's important to note, all of this represents the presence of God. Um, you know, we, we often think just of the ark as where God is present, and that's certainly the ultimate place. That's the mercy seat. Um, but he is also present through, the, through these other means. And, and we're going to talk more about this oil, and we're going to talk more about the bread and, and how that's significant, especially as it points forward to Christ. Um, the, uh, um, the oil in the, in the lamps, I mean, think about where else oil uh, is used in Scripture. Think about uh, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 of the, the ten virgins and the, those who had oil in their lamps and those who did not. Um, oil sometimes is representative of faith. Um, sometimes oil can be equated with, uh, I, I've heard oil being used uh, analogously with the Holy Spirit, but, but the oil has a very strong connection to God's presence with us. Well, so and, and not only is it the matter of the oil then that's put in the lampstand, and as you said, a very pure olive oil that's going to burn with very little smoke. That's part of it too, is that the oil is used to light the lampstand. So, I mean, it seems that the matter of, of light is going to be connected to God's presence there in the tabernacle as well, in addition to the fact that it's oil that's being burned, just the fact that it is burning, it's light. Right, and it's interesting also that the, these lights are lit and kept lit throughout the night when no activity is going on in the temple at all. Um, and this is perplexing until you think about how God manifested his presence when Israel is journeying. You have the pillar of, of cloud by day, and then you have the pillar of fire by night. Um, during the, during the day in the temple, there is constant smoke rising up from the temple from all the, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices that are being made. Um, and at night, that smoke isn't so much going on, but this, this lamp is lit. And so you have that same kind of manifestation of God's presence, uh, smoke during the day or cloud during the day and fire by night. Okay, so by those those two signs within the tabernacle, the regular smoke from the sacrifices going up on the altar throughout the day, and then at night, the fact that these this lampstand is is kept lit, both of those would be an indication that the Lord is dwelling among his people with his holiness for their good, 24 mm -hmm. hours a day, seven days a week. Right, he's never not with them. Yeah, okay, he's, good, he's good, okay. Present. Now, do you, do you want to talk about the, the connection of the lampstand to Christ, or do you want to talk about the, the bread of the presence and the table first and then connect it all to Christ at the end? How do you want to, how well, you want to do that? That's a good question. I think um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the lampstand first. I, the, my, my problem with, I, I'll be, I have to be honest with you when I was preparing for this, there is so much that we could sure. unpack here, we can't possibly do it all. And so I'm okay. still in my mind, I'm spinning around a little bit about which direction to go. So I'm kind of right. glad for you to ask these questions. Um, all right, well, let's, let's so, work yeah, our way through the lampstand then. Yeah, yeah let's, let's talk about the lampstand. So the, the, the lampstand is meant to manifest uh, the enlightening presence of God, let's say. Um, the, there is another connection we can make with the lampstand. And this, we're helped with this, um, by the prophet uh, Zechariah in chapter 14, he has a, he has a vision and I'm trying to find uh, where my note on that is. Um, 
that Zechariah 14 has a vision of the lampstand with uh, two olive trees. in Zechariah. Is it chapter 4? Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. It is in Zechariah. Yeah. But there oh, it's, it's in chapter, chapter 4, 4, 1 to 14. That's why I was, yeah. So there's a prophecy in the, in the vision of Zechariah <clears throat> 4. Um, he sees the seven lamps on the golden lampstand. Um, he sees them supplied with a permanent supply of oil. Um, he sees the bowl of oil with seven pipes, uh, which go to the seven lights on it. Um, and the bowl is supplied with oil from those two olive trees that are flanking the lampstand. Um, and the olive trees are understood to be two servants of God who uh, stood before God in his temple. And we understand these two olive trees to be representative of the uh, of of God's work to his people through his kings and through his priests. And so you can already see two of the, of the offices which Christ holds uh, present with this lampstand. The other thing that's important to understand is that the lampstand came to be, to be understood as representative of the tree of, of life. Hmm. Uh, that, and so there's an, immediate, there's an immediate pointing forward to the cross. <laughs> um, that that there that because the the you know Christ being the light of the world and where is is Christ most the light of the world but on his cross mm, okay so and, and with the tree of life does that just have to do with like the the decorative nature of this lampstand it seems to me I I don't remember all the details from Exodus but there there's very much plant imagery connected to this this lampstand and so you right. make the the connection of the tree of life right. Okay, so that's that's pointing us forward to the cross. Uh, it, it seems mm -hmm. to me we studied the Book of Revelation here on on sharper iron, and lampstands show up in that first chapter of Revelation too, in connection with the the churches. Right. Yeah. So, exactly. The, the the these these lampstands light is a huge huge theme when you're talking about the presence of God. Okay. So so and then you've got Christ as the light of the world, as you said. John develops that theme in in John chapter eight, and the thought of well, you even use the term the the enlightening presence of God. So it's not just that he's it's not only that he's there among his yeah. people, but the fact that he's among them helps us to or helps them helps us to see. Right. Well, and the whole idea of enlightening and life giving are so interconnected, going all the way back to Genesis 1. I mean, what is the first words that God spoke for the creation to come into existence? But let there be light. Um, and it, it was that light that became the basis for the remainder of the creation. Um, and so enlightening or light giving and life giving have a strong connection to one another, scripturally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of the of the pulpit that's here at Faith Godfrey, on the pulpit there is a picture of a of a lamp that's lit, and so you have that that idea mm. of the enlightenment of, of God's presence sure. in His Word. Sure. Yeah, and Christ, basically, <clears throat> the, the the enlightening presence of God is the is essentially the tree of life for His people. That is the that is the life. God is the life giving light for them. Yeah. Okay, good, good. So these are all connections of the lampstand in Leviticus chapter 24 to Christ, to the way that he remains with us 
in his presence, he enlightens us, he opens our eyes so that we truly see that happens in his word. All this is connected to the tree of life, the cross. There's end times connections. We got the, the tree of life in Revelation, the lampstand there. All of this is being brought to bear here, even in Leviticus chapter 24. I'm going to move on to the bread of the presence. Yeah, let's do that. All right. So the next so, the next thing, again, in Leviticus 24 is the, the matter of the bread, and it goes on a table. Talk a little bit again about the furnishings and then the details we get here. Yeah, we're, we're talking about that. This is all going to connect up with, with what, what's coming. We're talking about the holy things of the Lord, uh, which are handled by the priests at the moment. And we're going to get into why that's why the next couple of sections connect with these things uh, when we get there. But uh, this table, the, the creation of this table is described back in Exodus 25. And what we have here is a description of what the table is being used for. The, uh, it, is, it is used for uh, placing the bread of presence on. Um, and so they take fine flour and they make 12 loaves from it. Well, why 12 loaves? Well, where else is the number 12 have meaning in Scripture? Of course, it's always about the 12 tribes. Um, so you can think about, we were talking about Revelation earlier. Of course, 12 figures right. greatly in there as well. Um, and so they, there's 12 loaves of bread in two piles on this table of pure gold. That's the making of which is described back in Exodus 25. Um, and then there is the frankincense that, that goes there as well. Um, it, it's interesting that there, there is a, uh, this is the only food offering that is set before the Lord in the tabernacle. Um, the other, the other uh, um, food things that happen are all, all related to burnt offerings. Um, this, this, is, this sits there, sits there for a week, and then the priests will consume it uh, at the end of the following week before the new uh, bread is put out. Um, it's set before the it's set before the Lord in the tabernacle, but and you might think you know the the first thing people might think of, and I've heard this argument from uh, from rather uh, clever agnostics and uh, atheists before, is well they just borrowed this practice from the pagans because it's very common for pagans to put food out for their gods. Well, the problem there is that unlike the food offered to pagan gods, this does not actually provide a meal for God. None of, none of this is actually offered for God. Um, the, um, only, the, only the incense that accompanied the bread is burnt. The bread is all eaten by the priests who are on duty in the sanctuary on the Sabbath. So there is a, we, have, we have worship in the pagan sense being turned on its head here, much like we do in other aspects of Judaism and Christianity. Um, the, the divine service is instituted by the Lord in going in the opposite direction. Uh, and Kleinig rightly argues, John Kleinig wrote the, the Concordia Commentary, and I, I've learned 99% of what I know about Leviticus from John Kleinig. But John Kleinig talks about this, this uh, um, the, the worship service being, the divine service basically being instituted in Leviticus. The divine service as we know it really has its origins in Leviticus. And here we see a perfect example of that. Because the divine service is instituted by God to serve and feed his people, not to be served and fed by his people. 
And and here's a an ex, a prime example of that. Yeah, yeah. We and as you said, we've seen that throughout the book of Leviticus that the Lord does turn those pagan practices on their head, so that it's not about our service to God in order to somehow earn holiness or achieve holiness, but rather it's His service to us, so that He gives His holiness to us. Exactly. Yeah, God is the host of this meal. Um, the priests are actually the recipients. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so you mentioned earlier with with both these furnishings for the tabernacle, the lampstand, and now the table with the the bread on it, we're going to be talking about the Lord's presence among His people. So, how does how does the the bread serve as this function of presence? And and maybe we can start making connections to other places in the scriptures and into the New Testament. Oh yeah. Well, bread is um, everywhere. I mean, the bread as the presence of God is huge. Um, not, you know, you, you have it here. Um, I mean, where is there a gospel? Where in, where in it, are there any of our four gospels where Christ is not in some way described as the bread of life? Right. Um, you know, John 6, uh, after he, you know, well, you, I mean, obviously you have manna in the wilderness. God's provision comes through this bread. Uh, but but in you know as we're as we're pointing forward to Christ, we see Christ feeding the the people in the wilderness, uh, and then going off into that that discourse on Himself as the bread of life. And unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. Um, which of course caused a little problem for his congregation. <laughs> right. That's right. That's um, right. But. Uh, but he, he, the the presence of God and bread are inextricably tied scripturally all over the Absolutely. place. Absolutely. Now, there's there's one place that the bread of the presence, as it's given here, uh, comes up very specifically, and it, it has an Old Testament reference as well. Jesus brings this up in his Sabbath controversy with the Pharisees. They get mad at Jesus for picking the heads of grain. And Jesus brings right. up an Old Testament example where David and his men ate the bread that was supposed to be reserved for the priests. So how does, how does that yeah. play into this text? Right. Well, he's pointing out, he's pointing out, especially in that, in that question he asks the Pharisees was, the, you know, was the Sabbath made for man or man made for, was man made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath made for man? Um, he, and then he points out David eating it. He's basically talking about, he, he's, He's, he's exposing the fact that they don't know who he is. If they knew who he was, this would all make sense to them because he is providing bread for his apostles. It's pre-baked bread, it's grain, but it's still bread. He's providing it. Why? How is he providing it? Because he is the creator of all life. <laughs> he's the, he's the source of all bread. Yeah. Um, and and they they are questioning this, be, and 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 the priests ate the bread legitimately on the Sabbath day, and and the fact that David was even able, you know, to to do that, uh, it, it it means something. And they they didn't get that because first of all, they they really didn't know Torah like they thought they did, and as Jesus points out time and time again, implicitly is they don't know Torah and they don't know Moses because they don't know who he, who he is. If they, knew, if they knew Torah and Moses, then they would know Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I think, you know, even within this example, as Jesus uses it in the Gospels, 
you know, you've talked about in Zechariah, you've got those two olive trees, the priest and the king. As Jesus brings up the matter of, the, of David and his men eating the bread reserved for priests, and he talks about its fulfillment now in him, I think you see those two offices coming together there oh, in Jesus. Right. He is both priest and yeah. king. Right. You see the, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now, and, and you've mentioned, so Jesus, I mean, he calls himself the bread of life in John. He talks about then the, the eating of his flesh, the drinking of his blood. As we think about a meal of the Lord's presence given to serve us, not the opposite way around, where it's not us serving him, but it's him serving us. I think we have to make the connection then to the Lord's Supper. Exactly. That's, you can't go anywhere else. This, this is um, this bread of the presence. And that's, again, why we can't see Jesus saying anything other than this is my body and meaning it literally. Um, yeah. because he is, you know, he's pre that, that he is present for us in that bread, uh, is underscored by what we're seeing here in Leviticus and, and elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I think a, a good new Testament text that makes that connection is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how they, they mm -hmm. recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And then when they recognize him that he's when they recognize that he's present in the bread, then they don't mm -hmm. see him physically anymore. I think serves that same point. Right. And well, and then you also have on that in that same episode, you, you have uh, how does how does Jesus get them to that point? He opens up the scriptures to them. He opens up precisely what we're talking about to them. Well, sure. And even the connection to the lampstand, the thought of, of God mm -hmm. enlightening our eyes. So he does mm -hmm. that through a word, which he does for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opens their eyes through the scriptures, and then mm -hmm. their eyes are fully opened in the breaking of the bread when they, they see him present there. Even though they can't see him physically anymore, they know he is remaining with us. So again, both lampstand, bread, both are pointing to the presence of God among his people. That's the first mm -hmm. part of Leviticus chapter four, 24. We'll pick up more of the chapter on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jeffrey Reese this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 26th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 24, verses 1 to 23 with Pastor Jeffrey Reese. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tacoma, Washington. 
Pastor Reese, prior to the break, we talked about the opening part of this chapter in which the Lord assures the people of his presence among them, both through the lampstand and the bread of the presence laid on the tabard or the table in the tabernacle. Both of those make connections to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world and the bread of life for us, remaining present with us in word and sacrament still today in the church. Now, as the chapter continues then, we move to, as you said, another narrative within the book of Leviticus. We've had a brief narrative section previously, chapters 8 to 10. This is a briefer narrative, but it is a narrative. So tell us what happens here in Leviticus chapter 24. It almost seems as though uh, <clears throat> Moses is interrupted in the middle of, of uh, delivering these these commands, these statutes from the Lord. Um and uh, he's interrupted by this uh, issue where this uh, uh, young man, or I don't know if he's a young man, it just says an Israelite woman's son, but he's half Egyptian, also his father's Egyptian, uh, gets into a fight with someone else. And in the process of that, uh, he blasphemes. He, he curses the name of God. Um, and of course, they already know from Exodus 20 that that's bad. That's second commandment. It, Bad, bad, you know, bad stuff. Got to take him to Moses because we don't know what to do here. Um, and <clears throat> it's interesting that they they don't know what to do here. And and this actually explains to us. Uh, you know, I'll talk a little bit more of that later. Why the eye for an eye stuff comes up uh, here at the end of this chapter. Uh, why all? Why all? Why is all of this connected? They they have. Uh, unless I'm missing something, they have not yet publicly executed anyone. Uh, well, like you said in chapter 10, that was the Lord's doing. Right, he's, exactly. He's the, the, the last yeah. time we now, have a narrative and people have screwed up, the, it's unclear whether it's the Lord's doing or it's their, they just are basically wiped out because they violated, uh, uh, they, they broke the rules. They violated sure. the Lord's statutes and it cost them their lives. Now, um, just thinking back in within the narrative of the of these five books of Moses, in at the golden calf incident, you do have the Levites who turn their sword on the on their fellow Israelites, which I suppose is a, a public execution of swords, though not. Oh, okay. Yeah, me you're think back on something I haven't read in a while. But yeah, there's, well, there is. I mean, I suppose there's that at least as maybe a bit of a precedent. There's at least there's at least not been any any kind of a of a blasphemy incident, uh, right? You I mean, in the case of the golden calf, they were all guilty. That's right, and this right. is a bit more formal of a trial setting right. than than right. that was. Yeah, the golden calf, all of them deserve death, and that's what God, sure. in fact, had planned until Moses intervened. But but here, um, they've never had this happen before, and so of course they take. Uh, they put him in custody, uh, as they put it in, in verse 12, until the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Um, there, there was punishment indicated for this, but there was no specific punishment provided yet uh, in this. And so, of course, they, they wait for the Lord, and, and the Lord uh, gives his judgment that he is to be brought out of the camp, um, that he is cursed because he has cursed the name of the Lord. Um, all who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and then the congregation is to stone him to death. Okay. Um, and 
So it, it's it's interesting. Um, Kleinig suspects the reason why the uh, people are to lay their hands on his head is to basically transfer the pollute the pollutants of hearing the name of God cursed back onto the one who did so. Um, there's no indication as to specifically why that's they're being told to do that, but that's a I think that's a good guess, and I'm going to take uh, take Kleinig's explanation. Um, but the 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 other thing that I wanted to bring up here and why it ties in with what we've already talked about is we were talking about God's holy things in the uh, lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. And now we're talking about God's holy name. And they're connected for a couple of reasons. One is because all of these things involve having access to God. Mm. Um, specifically, the priests were the ones who had the closest access to God with regard to the lampstand and the uh, the bread. And one thing I didn't bring up uh, prior to that is uh, a question that might come up as well. The the priests were the only ones who ate the bread in the, the uh, tabernacle and then later the temple. Why is it that everybody eats the bread in the sacrament of Holy Communion? Well, as Peter reminds us, we are all we are all made priests because we are heirs with Christ uh, to that office. Um, and so we're, we're all, it's the priesthood of the baptized, the priesthood of all believers. Um, and so, but, but at any rate, the priests had access to God through those holy things. But God's laity, all the rest of God's people had access to God through his name. And to desecrate his name is to desecrate the access to that name, and it's also to to desecrate everyone on whom his name has been placed. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, so this you know we we have talked about this previously, but the holiness of God's name with the second commandment, as you already brought up, and then that Jesus invites us to pray in this way in the first petition, "Hallowed be Thy name." Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a really key event then in that regard to see how God's name is desecrated and the severe penalty for it. As you said, the, the name of God is the way that all of the Israelites are going to have access to his holiness. And so to misuse that is a very, very serious offense within, mm -hmm. within this context of, of Leviticus especially. Well, and to curse the name of God uh, is to wish God dead. <clears throat> um, and so it, is, it, it can be argued, and I believe if I remember right, Kleinig argues this, that it is a threat against his life. Um, and yeah, so I mean, it is punishable by death. Well, right, so the, the 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 crime that's listed there in verse eleven does seem rather specific. That it's the, mm -hmm. the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Mm -hmm. So yeah. he didn't. It, he took God's name in vain in that sense, but it was in, in vain in a very specific, very uh, a very severe form of desecration of God's name. Mm -hmm. I suppose. Right. Yeah. And God's name is also, as Luther reminds us in the large catechism, God's name is his reputation. Um, and to drag, drag God's reputation through the mud is, again, desecrating. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I mean, this is where, again, it may, and we'll, we'll talk more about this as we get into some of the penalties that are described, but this is where what, what may seem to us as a minor offense is, is a capital offense for the people of God here in Leviticus, because... I mean, really everything up to this point in the book of Leviticus is based upon God's holiness being present with his people, and that holiness comes from his very name. And so this is, 
this is a severe desecration of the holiness of God. Mm -hmm. It's not a small matter. Yeah, and that is hard for us because, I mean, today we hear God's name taken in vain on a regular basis, and perhaps we have even slipped up and done so ourselves. And perhaps we even have a real problem with that and that we need to really strive against. Um, but it, it, it and, and we take that for granted because we are in Christ, but it, it really is not a small matter, even for us today. Uh, it is a very poor witness, uh, you know, to fall prey to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe, and this is, this might be a, a small excursus to a degree, but what is it? Because when it comes to the second commandment and the taking of God's name in vain or the misuse of God's name, as sometimes it's translated, what, what does that mean exactly for us? Because I think sometimes people think it's like, it's saying four letter words. What, uh -huh. what does it mean for us to take God's name in vain or to misuse his name? Well, I would say, and you can, you know, we can just take Luther as our guide here and just in the small catechism. Uh, first of all, it's not just any, it's not just four letter words. It's actually saying, you know, you know, uh, asking God to damn something or, or uh, just shouting out God's name or Jesus Christ's name uh, in an exclamation of anger or, or what have you, or maybe even as a joke. Um, but it's taking God's holy name and using it for an unholy purpose, uh, for a purpose that does not bless anyone, that does not produce anything good, you know, that does not lead to anything good. Um, and, in the, and in some cases is even abusive, of, as Luther unpacks the explanation, that lying or deceiving in his name, using satanic arts, um, you know, it's, it's, it's at the very least... Uh, not productive or or a blessing to anyone, and at worst it is uh, destructive um, and abusive. Right. So, and, and I think it's in the large catechism, especially. He also specifies the matter of teaching false doctrine is an offense against right. the holiness of God. Sure. His name. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Which which again would be using God's name not for for purposes of blessing, but purposes of destruction. Yeah. So I would. I would add, I would add, you know, that to the deceiving in his name uh, category on the small catechism as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So in in the case that we've got here in Leviticus 24, it sounds like that that first category of of cursing God's name and actually wishing death upon him. It sounds like that's what is in view here for the mm -hmm. blasphemy against the name. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now the fact, and I, maybe you mentioned this, and I, I've just forgotten the the fact that he's the son of an Israelite woman and an Egyptian man, that plays into the the reason why they wait for God's judgment in the matter, because that that's part of the the unknown in this case is is he's technically a foreigner among them. That that has um, that that is actually one of the questions that Kleinig brings up is that they had to have been thinking to themselves, well, does this guy actually have to play by these rules because he's technically not an Israelite because he's only, he's half Egyptian. Um, and so that, that is a question that they may have been pondering. Um, but obviously in any case, the Lord's answer was very clear. It doesn't matter. And in fact, uh, as I recall, uh, in this and in a lot of other statutes that are given, it is, they are told, this applies to everyone in your household. This applies to the sojourner. This applies to, you know, anyone within your community has to abide by this. Mm. So right. uh, that, the answer to that is pretty clear. And then, and of course, the Lord says, he is to be brought out of the camp. 
and stoned to death. So sure. out, outside the camp, because his, his cursedness needs to no longer infect the camp, um, which is where a lot of people have to go even temporarily uh, under Levitical law when they're unclean for whatever reason. They have to leave the camp for a while until they can be ritually cleansed and brought back in. Yeah, that's right. Now, when, okay, so with it, when it says, oh, where did it go? In verse 15, speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death and all the congregation shall stone him. So are those, the cursing of God and then blaspheming the name, are those two separate cases that are being described there? No, I think this is a, a case of um, the, the way that Hebrew often is written, where it's repetitive to emphasize a point. Okay. Yeah, um, to make sure that, we, I do, you know, it's basically the Lord saying, I want to make sure that we're absolutely clear what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so, so he bears his guilt and he's mm -hmm. put to death by stoning. I suppose, you know, it, it strikes me as well that they they particularly ask the Lord for his judgment in this case, that, that could be an example of them respecting and keeping the holiness of God's name. They don't want to act outside his word and his name in this case, so they let him be the judge very specifically here. Sure. Yeah, and again, because I don't think they've ever had a case like this before. Right. And, and so they, they want to make sure uh, that they're doing the right thing. Right, right. Okay, so this then, the, the specific decree for this man is brought up there in, in the first part. God gives the reason for it. And then as, as he continues in this chapter, there's some more law that, that comes up that, that is familiar from other places in the Old Testament. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. What's going on here as this legislation continues? Well, again, I, I think that this is being put in here because they just got through this incident where they had to stone someone to death. It would probably be a good idea if we unpack when is and is not an appropriate time to, to execute someone. Um, a lot of people see uh, this section of Scripture as... Um, a justification for public execution today, you know, for, for capital punishment, which it is. Um, but it's important that we, and then other, other people who say, well, it's barbaric and cruel and all that. This is actually, uh, this is actually putting limits on punishment. This is actually, uh, it's actually creating a basic legal principle that's still in play today uh, in the, the law of retribution, the, the lex uh, talionis, uh, is taught in law schools to this day, I believe. Yeah. Um, because you, you need to make sure that, the, as we say sometimes, let the punishment fit the crime. Um, you want to make sure the punishment is, is uh, commensurate. It's a principle that is restraining the Israelites from overreacting. To, so if someone kills your animal, you don't, you're, you don't have the right to take their life because of that, for instance. Um, unlike the Old West where, you know, horse thievery got you executed. Um, that, that might be an example of barbarism, I suppose. But, uh, but what, the, what this section of Leviticus is doing is saying, here are the limitations. Here's the boundaries on this. Here, 
you know, this is a principle that you need to follow where you need to make sure the punishment fits the actual crime. So, and I think, I think that's an important point to make because I, I do think, especially in our day and age, this is often seen by the world in general as, as perhaps barbaric, as you said, but rather the Lord's purpose is to limit our sinful desire to overreact, our sinful desire, it, well, even for vengeance. So, you know, elsewhere, the Lord says vengeance belongs to him. And mm -hmm. so by giving this very specific case of what the punishment is for the crime, that does keep the vengeance in his hands exactly. rather than in ours, which, it, as you right. said, would, it would turn, you know, the loss of an animal into the death of a human, which mm -hmm. would, would then turn into like, a, you know, a feud between families that last for generations. That's the way that we tend to react. The Lord puts limits on our sinful nature here. Right. And it also does not prevent someone from exercising mercy. Um, it, you know, for as an example, in, in Luke chapter 1, what does Joseph do when he finds out that Mary is with child and not, not of him? He, he, he ha is within his rights to take her outside the camp and have her stoned to death. Yeah. He decides to divorce her quietly. You know, of course, later on, not long after, Joseph is, is told what's really going on and then everything's fine. But his first thought is not retribution, but mercy about protecting his you know his bride's uh reputation and integrity yeah yeah so in in placing the limits then on our human vengeance there is even there's further opportunity to be merciful as the lord is merciful to mm -hmm. show that forgiveness and and you're right joseph in the new testament is a good example of that now in terms of the way that this fits into the matter of the blasphemy of god's name having this lex talionis, the law of retaliation here, I think it helps to see. So if it is life for life, the fact that blasphemy of God's name, the penalty is a human life, it goes to show the seriousness yet again, and kind of the level of which blasphemy against God's name is treated. Right. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it, it, lex talionis does apply here, first of all, because God himself ordered it, um, and so we know this is his uh, will. Um, but secondly, the God's name is that holy. It, it is that, this is that deep of a matter. Yeah. So then as the, as the narrative concludes, Moses tells the people what the Lord's judgment is, and they do according to the Lord's word. They, mm -hmm. they bring him out of the camp. They stone him. This is what the Lord has commanded, and they do it. Again, there's the the keeping of God's name holy by doing according to his word. And the other, the other, um, the other thing to consider here is that there isn't, you know, as the, the whole idea of lex talionis, the law of retribution is to repay whoever was, was hurt. You can't, you can't really repay, uh, a murder mm -hmm. because even if, uh, and you, you know, you, there, there are all sorts of stories about families who will go to the executions or at least just learn of the execution of the one who murdered their loved one. And oftentimes the closure they're hoping for doesn't come because it just does not bring back, it can't, you can't bring back the life that's taken. Uh, likewise, there's no human compensation that could restore the Lord's honor from such a curse. Yeah, right. So the, the penalty life is is just according to the Lord's word. Now, right. before we, I, I do want to connect this to Christ, but before before we do that, 
since we've been talking a lot about the second commandment, the holiness of God's name, and the misuse of the holiness of God's name, what is, you know, we've talked about what it means to take God's name in vain and to misuse it. What does it mean for us to keep God's name holy or to have his name hallowed among us, to give us the positive aspect of this, even though it's not as present in the text? Oh, what is sure. That for us? Sure. Well, and again, we'll go straight to the first, the first, uh, or the, excuse me, the small catechism and the explanation of the second commandment and call upon it in time of trouble. Um, this is why we are given prayer to, we, we, we are given access to God to use his name uh, uh, in times of trouble. Uh, we, are, we are given it to praise him and give him thanks for all he has done for us. And of course, the reason why we don't need to take our brothers and sisters in Christ outside of the church and stone them to death if they curse God's name or blaspheme him is because Christ has already died that death for them. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Now you mentioned, so the second commandment does talk about the holiness of God's name. And the, the first mm-hmm. petition of the Lord's Prayer also talks about the holiness of God's name. So right. the, the pray, praise, give thanks. Also then, if we want to connect the first petition, the matter again of, of teaching God's word and truth and purity and leading lives according to it, both mm-hmm. of those involve us keeping God's name or God's name being kept holy among us. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and we've seen this elsewhere in the book of Leviticus, how the holiness that God gives through the sacrifices, the way that he has the people distinguish between clean and unclean, both of those aspects of his holiness then extend out into their daily lives, into their homes. And, and again, that's how God's holiness works. He gives it as a gift to his people. Now, thinking about this matter of the blasphemy that is committed by this young man and the, the lex talionis, the law of retribution, how do we see these things fulfilled in Christ? Well, again, God, the, the retribution for all of this is, is taken up <clears throat> Christ. The, the, Christ bears the sins of the whole world. You think about why the people laid their hands on the cursed one, the people who had heard him curse, uh, laid their hands on him. Well, they were trans, you know, the uh, Kleinig's idea is that they're basically transferring that pollution back to him. Maybe much like the peop- the priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat before sending it out into the wilderness um, to die. Um, G- just like those people took on those curses, or, or the scapegoat took on the curse of the people, that cursed man took on, you know, basically took on his own curse. Jesus takes on your curse and my curse. Um, and, and so... And that, that ought to also be, uh, you know, something that we keep in mind when we are tempted to take the name of the Lord in vain, is that Jesus has already taken that curse upon himself. So, you know, don't, don't, don't do that. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm getting more law here, um, but, you, you know, we, have, we want to have both, law and gospel. And yeah. uh, it, it, it is a significant thing when we take the Lord's name in vain. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe, a, you know, a, a good a New Testament example of this is with the the case of Peter there during the trial of Jesus when he and, and exactly what it means that he's calling down curses as a part of his denial maybe there's there's a connection there you know I mean but it, instead of Peter being executed then Jesus is the one who goes to the execution in Peter's place exactly yeah that's a good example because there is a sense in which you can say that Peter violates the second commandment by yeah. denying to even know the name of his Lord. 
Right, and of course Jesus goes as the innocent one. He 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 has not committed the blasphemy himself, but he he lets that those curses be placed upon him, and he does die as the accursed one outside of the camp. I think the, the writer mm-hmm. of Hebrews talks about Jesus' death outside the mm-hmm. camp, and I, I know Paul Paul connects the matter of the curse that Jesus has, especially to his death on a tree, uh, but but still the the thought of Jesus dying as the one cursed in our place. Uh, certainly, I think we can see as a fulfillment of what what's going on here in Leviticus 24. Sure, and Leviticus also uh, as a whole, and we see it all over this section that we've just looked at, um, is really all about God for us. Because if you notice, you know, all, almost every section begins with the Lord speaks to Moses or the Lord spoke to Moses, and and yet when you really read it, you realize He says remarkably little about Himself, almost mm-hmm. nothing about Himself. His, he's instituting the sacrificial ritual for the Israelites at the tabernacle. He's, he's helping them understand their proper involvement uh, there and, and making sure they know what it means that he's present with them. Uh, and he's doing all of this as a way of making them holy and setting them apart. Even, even the, um, the order to remove the cursed man from the camp and stone him to death, he, it's all about keeping his people holy. It's all about him being able to continue to dwell with them for their good. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Pastor Jeffrey Reese is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Tacoma, Washington. He has been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 24, verses 1 to 23. Pastor Reese, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. It's great to be back. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus chapter 24, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.